Radio Mano Papachango. gentlemen welcome to another edition of tangentially speaking today's guest is a very interesting guy uh, who's doing important work in the world his name's ian orbina u-r-b-i-n-a urbina urbina not sure which accent is right there um, but in any case he's uh he's won a pulitzer prize uh, george polk award he's been nominated for an emmy he's a very serious journalist uh, who's not afraid to uh, to laugh, I'm happy to say. And he's doing very serious work, but he maintains a sense of humor about it, and uh, we talk about these things. His last book is a New York Times bestseller. It's called The Outlaw Ocean, uh, based on more than five years of reporting. Uh, he spent a lot of time on ships exploring lawlessness on the high seas, uh, ranging from smuggling, arms trafficking, human smuggling, um, drug smuggling, you know, the whole thing, everything you can imagine, uh, dumping oil and garbage and all sorts of stuff out there where nobody can, uh, nobody catches you. And, uh, yeah, so it's a very important work. It, he's doing, you know, if you say a journalist at best is someone who brings things into the light that are happening in the darkness and the deepest darkness is distance right the most hidden place on the earth is some spot out in the middle of the ocean where no one sees nobody's there um so ian's work is extremely important and uh i hope you'll check him out after listening to this conversation, which is awesome. And I want to say, I want to thank um, Joel Havea for, for bringing Ian to my attention. You've heard Joel's music on this podcast before, uh, and I'm going to play one of his songs at the end of this little introduction. Um, he's a, a musician, a singer-songwriter, and uh, he, he sent me an email a couple weeks ago just saying, hey, uh, I thought you might be interested in this guy's work. Uh, I'm I'm working with him because, as you'll hear, one of the things that they're trying to do at the Outlaw Ocean is to sort of work together with different um, types of artists and uh, create this kind of multimedia movement around the environmental work that, that they're doing. And so um, Joel Havea is, is one of the musicians that they're working with. And uh, so Joel got in touch and uh, put me in touch with Ian, and here we are. You can learn more about what Ian's up to uh, by going to the official website of the project, which is theoutlawoceanmusic.com, or you can follow him on Instagram and Twitter. His tag is at Ian underscore Urbina, and... Uh, yeah, so that's how you can keep an eye on what they're up to and support them. As you'll hear in the conversation, a lot of what they do is supported directly by individuals. So if you've got an extra few bucks a month that you want to send their way to, to keep them afloat, please consider doing that. All right, before I get into this, I want to say this is episode 498 I'm going to record Aroma, which will be $4.99. I'll put that out in a couple of days. And then episode 500 is coming up. That's going to be live streamed, ladies and gentlemen, something I have not done before. Um, but Mike Marr, who has, uh, I think it's called Take a Deep Breath podcast, he, he and I have been in touch. He's been setting up my YouTube channel Chris Ryan which I encourage you to check out there are all kinds of things there including this episode will be posted there um, when I record these remote episodes I do it through 
a system that records the video as well. So if the guest is down for it, I just post the, the videos up there so you can see us talking if, if you're a visual kind of person. So you can check that out. In any case, we're doing this, um, this thing uh, Sunday the 24th. Yes, today is Wednesday the 19th as I record this. And Sunday the 24th at 12.30 p.m. Mountain Time, uh, we're going to be live streaming this. I don't have a link to offer you at this point, uh, but uh, it's going to be on my site on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube, go to Chris Ryan, uh, you'll see you'll see it there. Uh, and it'll be recorded, and, and of course we'll post it afterwards. So if you can't make it at 12.30 p.m., for the live stream, uh, you can always watch it later. Mike and Anya Katz will both be joining me. And I think the idea is that they're going to interview me more or less about my vast experience now as a podcaster hitting 500 episodes. Um, but as always happens, I'm sure we'll just wander off into whatever conversation comes up. And um, since it's being live streamed, Hopefully, we'll be taking questions from you. So if you tune in, uh, there's going to be a, a scrolling thing on the side so that we'll be able to see uh, your suggestions and questions and comments and whatever. So hopefully it'll be interactive. 12.30 p.m., Sunday the 24th, Mountain Time. Hope to see you there. All right. I think that's it as far as announcements go. Uh, without getting, without further ado, since I'm going to do that Roma and I've got all sorts of things I can rant and rave about on that, I'll just uh, shut the hell up and go right into this conversation with Mr. Ian Urbina. Fantastic guy. Really cool. Um, and I'm going to play you out with the song I mentioned by Joel Havea. It's called Mother... Hmm, what is it called? Mother Mauna, I think, is is the pronunciation. Mother Moana. Moana. Yeah. And it's, uh, I believe Moana is maybe Hawaiian or Polynesian word uh, referring to the ocean. And if you listen to the lyric, it's sort of a dialogue between those who think that the ocean is an endless resource to be exploited the first words are, look at her, she's endless, feels like infinity. Those pesky laws are overzealous and make no sense to me, right? Um, every day we're just fishing in the sea. What we do, nobody sees. And then there's a dialogue, a uh, Tongan chant, right? The word is Tongan from Tonga, which I, I believe is where Ian or Joel is from. Um, in any case, then the response is, look at her, Mother Moana. It's not hard to understand here on earth. We're all connected through water, air, and land. She's so much more than a source of oil and food. What's bad for her is bad for you too. Doesn't it seem that's the essential insight that somehow our species had for years and lost this idea that the external and the internal are connected, that there is no real separation between what's going on in your blood and your gut and what's going on in the environment around us. It seems like that's the lesson the world keeps trying to teach us and we keep somehow not hearing. In any case, I hope you enjoy this song. It's by Joel Havea and uh, it's called Mother Moana. And please consider looking into Ian's work more. He's uh, he's the real deal. It's an honor to to chat with a guy like this a little bit. All right, I'll talk to you again in a couple of days. I hope to see you Sunday. Like infinity 
Those pesky laws are overzealous And make no sense to me What's wrong with our FAD? We've already paid the licensing fee Every day we're just fishing in the sea What we do, nobody sees. Look at her, she's ready to drill and to exploit. And our shareholders are many, profits they do enjoy. What's wrong with a spill or two? She will be okay, is our point of view. Every day we're just drilling in the sea. Anyway, what we do, nobody sees. Understand. Here on earth we're all connected Through water and land She's so much more than a source of oil and food What's bad for her is bad for you too Just fighting for the sea Here to stay Even if nobody sees Every day We're just fighting for the sea Okay, after a bit of fiddling around, I think we've got the technology worked out. Welcome, Ian. Thank you for finding some time to chat today. Thanks for having me. You, uh, when we were lamenting our tech technological uh, issues here a few minutes ago, you mentioned the siren song. And uh, I wonder if that's a, a sort of central image for you, if, you know, being, you know, we're talking about the outlaw ocean and the challenges and the temptations and the dangers and the, the, the suffering. And uh, I mean, the siren song sort of sums a lot of that stuff up, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it mostly sums up the ocean itself as the siren and that, you know, there's something deeply alluring about the place, but it, it can be dark and dangerous. Yeah. yeah. So is the Outlaw Ocean, this is your most recent project, right? Yeah. It is. And are, is it an ongoing work or have you finished it and uh, at this point you're promoting it and then you'll move on to something else? It seems like you're sort of, uh, the sort of journalism you do must form a lasting connection it must be hard to move on from one project to the next 
Yeah, I mean, this project more so than any other. So I was um, on staff for 17 years at the New York Times doing investigative projects, which typically would last maybe two years. And um, then in 2014, I started the Outlaw Ocean uh, uh, reporting for the paper, and that series ran in the New York Times for two years. And then, you know, editors normally want you to move on to a new topic, um, but I decided to take two years off to go write the book and go back out to sea. And so I did that for two years. And then uh, when I came back, uh, I went back to the paper for one year and just found myself um, too captive by the topic and also too struck by the sort of lack of this sort of journalism about the space and the issues. So I decided to uh, leave the paper and create my own small nonprofit journalism organization to to continue producing these sorts of mm. stories. And so we're now two years old. The Outlaw Ocean Project, it's called, and we have a staff of ten, and and we produce you know eight to ten big stories a year for the New York Times and the New Yorker and uh, you know the Economist and others. That that's uh, that's got to be a really difficult uh, situation to be in, in, in the sense that. Uh, you know, these news organizations used to have the funding and, uh, you know, were structured in such a way that they could afford to to send someone like you out on a long project. And now you've got to sort of do it all yourself, almost on spec, and then place it in these organizations. Um, do you, are there other people doing this? This seems to be a, a real difficult moment, a, sort of a transitional moment, then you're holding <laughs> on in a way to something that seems to be slipping away in terms of journalism. Yeah, I mean, I think in a, in a, in a weird way that the sort of um, the market and the profession of journalism have been has been changed hugely by the Internet. And um, one of the consequences for legacy outlets like The New York Times um, is that they uh, um, are pulling back from long-form investigative international journalism because it's expensive, uh, very expensive. Um, so that has made, in its in its wake, in, in the void created, there have been these boutique um, nonprofit outfits that have emerged to try to fill that gap. And, and so ProPublica, I think, is the most famous and one of the first uh, that is a similar model. It's all philanthropically funded, and they produce their own stories. They maintain ownership over them, and then they partner with distribution outlets. Um, uh, then the Marshall and, and ProPublica was started by a New York Times guy, and, and the Marshall Project was started by another uh, New York Times former executive editor, Bill Keller, and that focuses on um, uh, criminal justice issues, similar model. And so the, the Yellow Ocean Project, uh, because uh, both of those people are former colleagues. In fact, Bill Keller hired me at the New York Times. You know, I, I, I sort of wanted to mimic that mm -hmm. model. It's brutal in some ways and delightful in others in the sense that, um, you know, uh, funding your own journalism through philanthropic dollars is not a sustainable model, right. you know. Um, and so you can probably jumpstart something, but you can't grow and last in that um, framework. So um, what we do is... We've tried to figure out creative entrepreneurial, you know, methods of weaning ourselves from the philanthropic dollars. They fall in two categories. One is really just plea a plea to individual readers who want to put up five bucks a month, something very small, but to support you in particular and your organization. And that's been decent. Um, and then the other is um, collaborations with different types of artists. Uh, we have a big music project. Uh, that we've spun off uh, where we team up with musicians, hip hop, electronic, classical, you name it, from all around the world. And um, we make music uh, tied to the journalism using some of the sounds and the reporting. And then we publish the, the albums and anything made on the music, 50% goes back to the musician and 50% goes into the nonprofit for more journalism. And that's been very successful. We have over 500 musicians and 90 million listeners. Um, and so we're trying to sort of um, scale that model, entrepreneurial model up and, and move into animation, video game, mural art, other forms of collaborative art efforts that get the reporting out further, but also maybe in a small way fund more of the journalism. Mm, well, that's interesting. That That's it almost makes me hopeful for the future of, of what you're doing. I mean, I, it must be really hard for you because you're you're trying to do 15 different things simultaneously. Um, but you are it sounds like you're establishing a model that other people might be able to follow down the road a bit. 
I, I think so. I mean, I think the, the model of collaboration with other types of creators is definitely replicatable. I think the specific model of um, doing music based on the stories, um, time will tell whether that can be replicated. We're making it work because we built a, a sort of custom design thing from the ground up. Mm -hmm whether it's transferable is is you know hard hard to say but we um you know even in the in the very way we report when you know we're out there we're always making sure we're capturing audio at the same time as video and stills and the written word so that we can grow our you know and so you really have to think about this on the front end so that you have the right type of material on the tail end to do this sort of stuff but um, but yeah, I think I think um, there is real possibility and, and collaboration between journalists and other types of creators doesn't happen yeah, enough. Yeah. So adding another hat to your to your many hats here, you're also an anthropologist, am I right? I, yeah, I would say retired. You know, former. You know, I, I went to grad school, and that was my. You know, I, I did my doctoral work and field work uh, in cultural anthropology, and then I um, pivoted into journalism. And and I, I think journalism of a certain sort is a, a kind of short order chef anthropology. Right. You know, um, uh, if if done well. But yeah, that's my training, my academic. That's training. interesting. And and you did your your field work in was it Singapore or Malaysia? No, so I, I did my field work in Mexico and Cuba, oh. primarily in Cuba. Um, I lived in Cuba for a while, but but uh, I I ran away from my dissertation. My procrastinatory period was in Singapore when I was burnt out on on you know three chapters in and cold winters of Chicago and needed a break. And so I went and got a job on a ship in Singapore. Uh, That's why you remember. Okay. It. And I that that was my first exposure to seafarers. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I've, I've got some personal connection with this stuff. I, I, um, after college, I hitchhiked up to Alaska and spent two summers working in the fishing industry. Um, so when you were describing the, the fish guts and the slipping and sliding around and, you know, all the heavy machinery and all that stuff, when, when I was looking into your, your work, it, a lot of that's familiar. I still get that when I go to a fish market and I just smell that. You know, for most people, it would be disgusting. For me, it smells like youth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and how, where exactly in Alaska, what type of fish? Tell me a little more. If, if oh, I yeah. I The first summer I, I worked um, in a cannery in Kenai. Um, it was 1983. And then the second summer, uh, I went down to Seward and just total strain you know i have no experience on boats or anything but somehow i got a job as a deckhand on a tender that was um working out of seward in uh the uh what's it called there prince william sound and um and then that that boat was based in kodiak so at the end of the summer we went to kodiak and uh Nice. Yeah, wow. that was wow. that was a I mean, I experienced some of the outlaw ocean on that boat. It was me, um, this horrible dude and the dude's son, who was this sweet 17 year old who was spending his first summer with his dad, uh, who divorced his mom when he was a kid. So it was like this kid was sort of seeing his dad for the first time. And his dad was just a total douchebag, oh, awful guy. Oh, wow. And so it ended up being almost cinematic. It was like a struggle between dad and me for the soul of his son, you know? And uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there were moments. I remember at dinner one night, the father was saying some horrible stuff. And, and I spoke up and he, he looked at me and he said, you know, I could shoot you and dump your body and no one would ever know. And I said, your son would know. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sums up. I mean, you, you, you very much get what people find hard to believe about the mentality and the hierarchy on ships. That, that is not the boss. That is God. Yeah. Yeah, you know the, the captain is um, something that most other professions don't have in that workplace. Yeah. yeah, and he, you know, and you talk about the lawlessness of the sea. I, you know, as a way to mess with me, he used to make me take the the bags of garbage and just dump them off the side of the boat. 
And I was like, dude, we're going to be in Seward in two days. No, go throw it in the ocean, you little hippie, you know. Yeah. Yep. It sounds it sounds utterly authentic in a dark sort of way. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and have you been up to Alaska? No, since? no. I keep wanting to go back. Uh, you know, it's a, I'm at a time in my life now. I'm about to turn 60. So I'm sort of there's you know, if you know, my girlfriend who's into astrology calls it the Saturn return, you know, it's the second return of Saturn. And there is something <laughs> cyclical about it. I'm right now I'm speaking to you from uh, Antigua, Guatemala, um, where I oh, wow. first went uh, 31 years ago. Uh, and so there, there's a return there. And I, I we're thinking maybe we'll go to Alaska this summer. I have a van and we cruise around nice. in the van. So we're thinking maybe it's time. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's have you amazing. spent time there? I have never been. Oh. I've never been, but I, I very much want to go. But I did read Out of Alaska or Out of Out of Country. What's this famous oh, book about oh, Alaska by the New Yorker? Yeah, guy. yeah, coming um, into the country. Uh, back right, and I, and and folks had told me you really need to read it because the sort of frontiersman mentality and just the gritty level of detail that that thing um, captures is. Um, what you probably should aspire for in the Atwell Ocean. So when I was at sea, it was one of the only actual hard copy books I brought with me, mm. and I and I brought it on tape, and and I consumed the hell mm. out of it. You know, it was so helpful uh, for me to be thinking about what writing about this sort of otherworldly place looks like, uh, and so it, it was a real inspiration. So and and it made me really interested to go to Alaska to see what that world is like. Yeah, yeah, that's a good book. Uh, I'd also recommend. Uh the the book about Chris McCandless, um, what's that called? Uh, Into the Wild. It's also, I mean, that's oh, yeah. an awesome book in many yeah, ways, yeah. but also the right. Alaska angle. Right. Right. Um, yeah, the, you know, I was thinking when I was looking into your work, and and uh, I, I was thinking how it's you know this these questions of um, illegality, human trafficking, arms smuggling, all the all the nastiness that's going on in the open sea right now, in many ways is very much a reflection of this particular moment in history of global trade going gangbusters and, you know, environmental issues front and center. But in another way, it, there's something kind of eternal about it, um, you know, in the sense that in the 17th and 18th century, you had people being shanghaied, I guess was the, you know, the phrase, people just being grabbed up on the streets of San Francisco, Jack London style and thrown onto a boat and, and, you know, essentially enslaved, um, the death rates on these merchant ships in the mm -hmm. days of Herman Melville and Joseph Conrad, you know, were 50% or more of the, the guys who left port never came back. So there's, there's this kind of, do you ever feel like, I mean, I'm constantly battling hopelessness and I'm not focused on this stuff the way you have been. How do you keep your shit together? <laughs> do I? I don't know. I mean, you should ask my my family if I do. Um, no, I mean, on hopelessness, um, I don't know. I think I, my coping mechanism is not to look at the war, you know, um, not to look at um, can we win? Are we winning? Will we win um, the war, but rather just the individual battles and really trying to um, put in a good day in each battlefront that I can. Um, and I think that um, the hopelessness in a weird way is almost the fuel that motivates me to keep going in, in, in the sense that it's, it's just there's a lot wrong out there. And I was born um, through that fateful lottery into conditions that are not Mumbai or Mogadishu or Kabul, you know what I mean? Or as a female in any of those places. And, you know, like uh, my point being, I, I was born into a pretty lucky situation and that shackles me with some serious guilt mm -hmm. about what I owe, whatever the universe or my fellow man or whatever you want to say. And, and, and so the notion of not um, trying to focus on, <clears throat> doing my little part uh, uh, on this um, effort is, uh, 
it's scarier to me to think of the demons I'd be haunted by if I wasn't doing this sort of stuff than than the things that might seem scary when I am doing this stuff. Interesting. I guess I right. put it that way. And have you always felt uh, a sense of responsibility? Where, where did that come from? Yeah, I think I did. I mean, I, yeah, for better or for worse, and I don't, I don't um, say this with a sense of pride. I say it as sort of a matter of fact, um, and in a, sometimes loathsome, annoying fact, because I envy those who aren't shackled by this. But, but yeah, as, for, as long as I can remember, I found one of the most troubling things in um, the world around me that so many people weren't haunted by this stuff. Like even when confronted with the disparity um, in stark fashion, that it didn't get to them more than it does, and quite honestly, that it doesn't get to me more than it does. I function fine, you know. I go through my life. I live in a pretty luxurious middle class existence, and such horrific stuff is happening. And so the ability to compartmentalize is obviously key to sanity but at the same time it's pretty insane <laughs> you know the very fact of it in light of what the disparity means for other people not that far away or very far away is really dark and that we kind of just go about our existence meanwhile is really heavy mm -hmm. and that's bothered me since i was uh, you know an adolescent yeah. yeah i had an experience with that uh just a couple hours ago when i was uh, reading some interviews that you had done and you mentioned um, Renong and how you were there, I guess, doing some research. And I've been to Renong many times. Um, I have a friend who lives on Kopayam, just off the coast there. And um, you know, there are the um, what are the, the the boat people, the you know the sort of people with no passport, and and there are camps of them there on the island. And I did an interview with. A missionary who who was working with them there, and um, and you talked about some of the, the the horrible things that are going on, human slavery and and trafficking and things happening in Renong. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've walked, I probably walked right by one of those clubs that you were talking about with no idea of what's going on ten feet away from me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and we all do. I mean, you're no, I. I um I'm not on some higher ground than anyone else. Uh, uh, so, it, it, yeah, it's it's just a reality that um, I think we all, um, if we're honest, um, have to reckon with. Yeah, it's almost like the industrial food system. You know, people look at the pork chop and have no idea what's going on at the slaughterhouse or the transportation or, or the, you know, the destruction of the environment. It's just, I, I mean, I personally am constantly struggling with this stuff. Uh, you know, like trying to not see the whole picture because the whole picture is so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's a funny thing, right? I mean, the distance between producer and product is so um, wide now and often so tangled and, and, and often so intentionally murky, yeah. you know? Um, but, but you have, like you said a second ago, and then things happen like the pandemic or the global supply chain lockdown. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like a little thing can cause a domino effect, which is still gripping our economy and could tip us into recession. You know, um, so as distant and, and murky and whatever, as we might think we are, you know, a bat in some cave in China can shut the planet down in six months. Yeah. I mean, think yeah. about that. That's yeah. amazing. Um, uh, or, you know, a clog in, you know, the Straits of Suez and L.A. left for two weeks can tip the planet into, you know, it's just so, you know, we are pretty darn connected uh, more than sometimes we realize for better and for worse. You can also have positive chain ignite in similarly rapid fashion. Yeah, yeah. Um, Having spent this time on the in the ocean, do you feel I, I, I've read in these interviews you you recommended more uh, rules and more enforcement to to try to forestall some of these um, these tragedies that you witnessed at sea. Um, but how does that work? I mean, we've got 
you know, we're talking about Alaska and this frontier mentality isn't the open ocean is the frontier, right? It's like the eternal frontier in the sense that national laws end whatever, 10 miles out or whatever the, the margin is out there. It, it's a whole different world. And people are I mean, they're flagging their ships in Panama or, you know, wherever it's cheaper. And, and it's people aren't even everyone's sort of uh, disguised and. Um, it just it feels hopeless to me. Like, how are we going to police the open sea? How, how would that happen? Satellites or drones? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, first, I would I would say kind of what I was saying before is, um, you know, a version of this point is the question sometimes I get, which is, so how do you solve the outlaw ocean? And my answer is like, well, not unlike if you asked, how do you solve injustice? The first thing you do is you don't ask that question <laughs> because it's completely unanswerable. Right. Um, and so you don't solve the outlaw ocean. And this is my metaphor about wars, war versus battles. I think moving away from looking at the war and being overwhelmed by the war. Yeah, it's important to recognize there is a war happening. But, but then coming down in the outlaw ocean framework and thinking instead about Okay, there are a lot of different. The Al Ocean is 15 chapters. Each one tackles a different thing: murder, stowaways, and ocean dumping, and arms trafficking, and sea slavery, and illegal fishing. And you know, um, there are some cross-cutting fixes that I think actually can go through a lot of the silos. And you cited one of them, like the potential to just have better monitoring of what's happening out there is a prerequisite to virtually everything. You know, whether it's wage theft or murder or dumping of oil or illegal whaling or ocean plastic. And, you know, um, if you don't know what's happening out there, then there's no chance in hell that any player, whether it's companies or governments or, you know, you know, a cabal of investors, at, at, you know, on the board level at a company, you know, activist investors or whatever, class action lawyers, whatever is the stakeholder group, if you can't even lay eyes on the problem in a sustained way, then you can't. So that's, that's one huge thing. Um, uh, I think, but th but there are lots of others. Like I think, and and it feels a little Pollyanna to say it, but I do believe that likely change will happen with lots of different folks acting in lots of different capacities, even in one person at the same time. So you are a taxpayer, you're a donor, you give money to organizations, you're a interlocutor, you talk to people on your show or just at restaurants or whatever, uh, you're a voter, you know, you have lots of different hats you wear, you're a buyer and consumer. In all these places, you can exert some level of impact. It's infinitesimally small, I get it, you know. But like, if, if first of all, we think of ourselves as individuals who don't just wear one hat, but wear eight or nine different ones. And in each of those, we try to figure out what are the small actions that we can do for one of the battles, not all of them. Like, my thing is st stowaways, my thing is, is, is uh, sea slavery, my thing is uh, ocean plastic. I'm going to really try to double down and I'm not going to buy that product. I'm going to have a conversation with my girlfriend. I'm going to, you know, like, I think if, if people start doing that, it, the, the collective pressure does um, work. You look at blood diamonds mm. or you look at, you know, uh, sweatshop labor or sweatshop garments. And you look at uh, dolphin free tuna, you look at other supply chain moments in history, social movements around product lines or whatever. And usually the sociological, autopsy reveals that it was a whole bunch of things that came together uh and and um they turned a corner they didn't fix it the war was never won the shit's still happening but like it's way worse than it was before and that's probably a multilateral thing that's my right. theory and the first step of that is to bring attention to it and, and get the information out right. which is obviously what you're doing right is right. it i mean are you going undercover because when I, I read you, you talking about how you do interviews and you do a lot of research and, and you, you, you're very transparent about who you are and, and what you're doing. But it seems to me like that would make it very difficult. Like what captain's going to let you on his ship if you're going to expose the wage slavery or the garbage dumping or the oil being you know dumped into the ocean? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, so most of the reporting was done at the Times or under the Times rules. And, you know, tier one venues, the Washington Post and New York or the Times don't tend to sanction undercover. Um, you can do things. We send reporters in to Syria during the war and they're not allowed to be there. You know, we, we routinely cross lines mm -hmm. 
in journalism, but but um, uh, misrepresenting yourself is one of the um, rules that most you know outlets of a certain sort um, don't abide by. And I agree, uh, generally, generally speaking. So I don't go undercover. I don't announce myself in bright, you know, <laughs> colors when I go to Songkla, Thailand, and, and I'm attempting to get on these ships. Um, but I, when I'm talking, so to answer your question, if, if, you know, when we're doing the sea slavery reporting, we're trying to get out onto certain vessels that are two, 250, 300 miles from shore, um, uh, getting the, the first captain to take us out the first 50 miles to get us on the next vessel is the hardest and it actually gets easier with each hopscotch because the further out you get the less those guys care about the new york times or some english speaking journalists or whatever they're bemused and befuddled as to why you want to get on their Mm. ship but if you just say and and you also don't talk in terms that are automatically you don't want to deceive them but you don't want to use terms that just don't compute like trafficking or sea slaver you say look I, i this is a brutal line of work um violence happens here in both directions your guys jump you mutiny you guys you beat them when when you need to send the message i just want to capture what is going on here the world doesn't know how this work occurs how difficult it is how dangerous it is for lots of parties and um you know would you let me and my team come on for two days and and try to show the world what you do and you know uh normally they say yes but you can't photograph me. You can't name my ship. You know, they lay ground rules. Uh, when we tell you to get out of the way, get out of the way. Mm. But fine. Mm. You know, um, because you're a curiosity to them, too. And, and if you've done your your initial pitch well, then they size you up as, you know, seemingly a straight shooter. Right. You know, who who knows a little bit about their world. And that usually is your ticket. And, and, and that's accurate because, you know, you're not there to get them personally in trouble. You're there to just show what's going on. Right. And it doesn't you don't need their name or their face to do that. Yeah, I mean, it brings us back to Ranong, right? That that exact incident is a place where you suddenly feel sullied as a journalist, as you well know, when you embrace that point you just made too much, right? So you might witness things where you ethically as a human, not as a journalist, feel like I need to be, I need to get involved with this person right now. You know, I need to do something right now, even if it compromises the story, because to not do so is pretty dark and self um, serving. Um, And those moral conflicts come up once in a while where you feel gross for having cared more about your story than it. I mean, the whole rhetoric, as you well know, is yes, but your story might change the rules of the game, might change and help this person if you play your cards right and get to the police in time. Um, some days I believe that rhetoric yeah. and other days I think it's bullshit. And, you know, it's just a, a cover for wanting to do my story. Yeah. Yeah. I there was a time in the in the 80s when when I was considering uh, trying to get into photojournalism as a career. And uh, I was living in Manhattan. I took some classes. um, And I remember one of the teachers was a prize-winning photojournalism. I I forget his name, or photojournalist. Um, He'd lost a foot. He stepped on a landmine in Rhodesia or somewhere. And he would cover El Salvador, you know, just really in the muck of this stuff. And I remember one night we went out for drinks, and, and he was talking about how he was totally committed to that perspective that you just described to the point where if he walked past someone being murdered, he would photograph it. He would not try to help the person. And if the person was lying there bleeding to death, he would take photos. He would not try to staunch the wound, you know? And, um, and we were just aghast. Like that, that was just such a in, yeah. incomprehensible thing to say. But he then he went and he told us this story about how he was in, I think it was Rhodesia, and the war, there was a war happening, and this family sheltered him. And then the militia came, dragged the family out of the house, didn't bother with him because he was white, and he photographed while they murdered this family that had sheltered him. And I think that's how he won his Pulitzer or whatever it was that he won. And, and it was just like, man, I can't imagine the 
the conflict, you know, like, like I am an, I am here to witness. I am not here to intervene and I understand it and I respect it, but whew, it's, I guess it's like a surgeon, right? You have to cut into someone to save them. There, there's some kind of, um, mm-hmm. purity that that's foreign to yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, my dad's, a, he's now retired, but a federal judge. And we used to have these really heated debates about the law, you know, and, and, and mm. abiding by the law. And, and it's a similar core tension, right? You know, like, um, if you believe in the law writ large, to the extent that every part of it and every manifestation of it has to be abided by, then, okay, then that's you. You're a fundamentalist at some level. If you think that maybe in some places the law is um, unjust and wrong and should be opposed and you're willing to break it, then there's quite historical precedent for lots of people that we now look fondly upon, but at the time were considered, you know, and I sort of feel like the same way. And, and I said, you know, when we were growing up, I was like, I can never go to law school because I can't um, swallow that pill. Mm. Um, and similarly in journalism, I've never swallowed the pill all the way to the extent that your professor has. I couldn't, I couldn't do that and live with myself. I don't believe in the profession of journalism to that religious fundamental degree that I think that's the right ethical thing to do. Um, it might be a pragmatic thing to do. Like, well, if I help these folks, I will, they will kill me. Hmm. And so that's a, but that's a different matter. If you're, if you're claiming a journalistic argument, um, and I don't look down on those who do believe it. I just, I I can't, I've never been able to swallow that. Yeah. There's a, I'm not sure how this is related, but I, I had a guy in the podcast recently, Stephen Donziger. Do you know about his case? Mm. He, he, the name, remind me. I feel like Harvard it'll come to me. Law, you know, uh, uh, sort of advocate of environmental. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah. did this work. Down in, the, now in Latin America. Right, in, mm-hmm. in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And he won the $5 billion judgment against Chevron. And now they have the the Justice Department declined to prosecute him because he wouldn't turn over his computer and phone because he claimed attorney client privilege. But Chevron got a private judge to prosecute him. I didn't even know this was possible. And now he's just been sentenced to six months in federal prison, despite the fact that the Justice Department refused to to involve itself in this. It's it's, uh, you know, unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I remember the Donziger case and the sort of blowback where the, I guess it was, she- was it Shell Chevron. or Chevron? Yeah, but it was Texaco yeah. and then they um, were bought by Chevron. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so is he due to serve soon or is he going to appeal? Uh, or? Yeah, he's there. They're sending him to prison within a day or two. He's, he's, it's coming down now. Yeah, it's it's incredible. But I mean, I'm reminded of his case because, you know, the Amazon, like the open ocean, is this kind of unpoliced Wild West area. And uh, you can you can get in a lot of trouble because there are a lot of very powerful forces out there. Yeah, what's funny is so um, I did a series uh, over the course of three years early days uh on fracking um called drilling down at the new york times it was one of my first big investigative projects and i had been warned on the front end there are three players in society as a journalist that you should be real ready for blowback when you go up against one is scientology the other is the catholic church and the third is oil and gas industry and i was like okay i got it i got it and we went into battle and we ran this series and it was amazing It, it became the movie, the Matt Damon movie, Promised Land, and it, it was it was one of my proudest series, and it got um, incredible um, blowback from the oil and gas industry to the extent that they had you know that Aaron Brockovich scene where they're all at the board table and she calls in like the the cleaning the office staff to make it look like they have more lawyers. Uh, you know, we had a, a a meeting at the New York Times where Exxon and a bunch of these other companies um, sent their people and. We're saying I should be fired. Not a single 11 front page stories in 12 months. Not a single factual correction on any any one of them. But 
the blowback of that was incredible. They, I was on the subway once here in D.C. And I look across and there's there's a free paper they hand out and uh, it had a headline, New York Times reporter stock and coal reason going against fracking. It was a whole story. I don't own a stock. I've never owned a stock in my life. I don't even know how the stock market works. You know, it was like all fabricated stuff that. So these guys play really dirty and really aggressive. Um, the ocean, the Owl Ocean, zero blowback. Mm. The only, the closest thing to blowback was I got a call from the Thai ambassador after the first sea slavery piece ran. He said, let's go to lunch. And, you know, he did what ambassadors do. Like, we want an open communication. And, you know, we're sorry we didn't answer your calls originally. Now we understand. And how can we help? And that's it. You know, it's because the adversary is so disparate, mm. you know, um, in, in the Owl Ocean that, that it's a hard line of reporting but not because of the blowback fracking was hard it didn't it wasn't disparate and but it was really bare knuckled you know um so it's just funny how topics vary depending on who you're going up against and do they have a well-paid line yeah do you ever like like when i think about situations like that uh it it strikes me that the individual people don't even necessarily believe the positions that they're taking, right? Like the, the lawyers for Exxon, they're not necessarily evil people, right? They're well-paid lawyers. They maybe they give lots of, maybe they support you. Maybe they're sending, you know, your organization a check every month. And, and, you know, hopefully (laughs) this is as close as I get to being an optimist, But you know what I mean? There's this uh, sometimes I I feel like uh, there's a super organism element to this. There's like there's something that happens that goes beyond the individual. So, you know, like you you see these ads, you know, Exxon believes and it's like, well, how can Exxon believe anything? Exxon's a non-human entity, right? It's not it doesn't (laughs) exist in a tangible sense. Um, So sometimes it's like. It's like as individuals, we're, I feel like we're trying to affect change and we're trying to convince people of things and we're, we've got our arguments and our, and our reasoning, but it feels like we're caught in these giant sloshing historical... <laughs> <laughs> I love your metaphor. Yes, I, yes I, I, I hear the point you're making and, and yeah, there is a, a dialectic almost that we're both a part of... Uh, um, and uh, a lot of people are playing a role, whether they believe it or not, they know they're acting. Um, uh, I think most of the folks believe enough of it, you know, like, and then they avoid stuff that will challenge think you know their outlook you know i believe in energy independence and i believe in jobs for west virginians and i believe in um uh fighting for the little man and i believe that government is um overreaching and so i'm joe manchin and i'm going to go up against the climate bill you know like i think he believes those tenants you know and and manchin's different like if he's representing his job is to represent his people Period. Above all else, even if it means that, you know, be damned the planet, you know, his job is to rev. OK, and that's what he believes in. I bet if you got him a couple glasses of wine in, I bet you could get to that like truism. Like, yeah, I believe in climate change. I believe coal should go. But my job is to represent West Virginians and 70 percent of them are in coal. And so I got to keep them employed, you know, and I'm going to kill this bill. Like that's, I think, what these folks believe in. Same thing with the you know, uh, the anti, the fracking folks, like they don't read really closely and challenge their beliefs and think, you know, maybe I shouldn't have this job in the first place, uh, because it's going to end up hurting West Virginians in 30 years, even if I help them in three. Um, so I, I should let someone else do this job because it's unethical. I don't think they they really reckon in that way. Yeah, well, and that sort of brings it back to the initial point, right? Like if if Joe Manchin quits out of some ethical concern, Exxon will just get someone else elected who will you know vote exactly the way they want, right? It's, I, I mean, it, it to me it seems like representative democracy has become representing corporate interests. You know, cinema and mansion get all this money from energy companies and big pharma. And so, of course, they vote against, you know, the right to negotiate drug prices or, or uh, you know, any kind of climate change. 
It it just mm-hmm. feels, mm-hmm. you know, that's the sloshing of it. I feel like we as individuals are trying to do our thing. And even if we could convince uh, someone like Manchin to see the light, it's not going to change anything because then, you know, people say to me, uh, you know, good people work at Exxon. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure they do. But uh, if the CEO of Exxon took some ayahuasca with his son in Peru and came back and said, we've got to stop this deep water drilling. This is crazy. You know, the fracking is destroying the planet and the aquifer and all that. Well, he'd be out of a job by noon, right? So it it doesn't mm-hmm, matter, mm-hmm. in a sense, uh, mm-hmm. the individual. I, I mean, I guess I would say, yes, the, the only... Uh, and it's funny for me to suddenly play the optimist <laughs> part um, since you're outflanking me on my home turf. Um, uh, but I, I think um, I, get, I guess at the same time with the sloshing, I do think there can be big forces that are collectively um, mobilized that end up embarrassing the hell out of Exxon, right? Like you can have movements that then force industries, including big players within the industry like Exxon or Walmart or what have you, to be like, okay, we got to do something here. This is not going away. There are enough people now talking about it. It's showing up on comedy shows. It's showing up in major films. It's showing up in newspapers, as always. It's showing up all these places. And it's my kids at school are coming home, and they're talking about it. And it's everywhere. And we gotta, we got to do something. So let's start a rollout. Or let's start a, a plan to get Deet, you know, like you know, like you, you look at like okay, cigarettes. You know, you look mm. at things that ultimately did change. Now we got vaping and other crap that they're peddling, but um, things do sometimes change. And David, once in a while, does take down Goliath, <laughs> even if his cousin shows up the next day. Um, so that's my attempt at optimism. Now, let me go back to my side of the field, please. <laughs> yeah, sorry for dragging you down into the mud. <laughs> no, I'm, that's, where, that's where I belong. Uh, I just normally am not the one arguing the counter, but anyway. Well, thank you, well, thank you for doing that, though. I feel better. That, that's very helpful. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> it won't last, yeah, don't worry. It never does, does it? Yeah. Uh, so what's your what what's your next uh, what's your next move? Are you do you have something else planned? Are you going to assault some other some other great evil? <laughs> Slay another dragon? No, I mean, I think I'm going to stick. Uh, I'm going to like run my head at Goliath um, that this Goliath for a while more. So in the Yellow Ocean Project, you know, we got a staff of nine. We're 24 months old. We're producing like eight big stories a year. We got a big piece coming out um, in the New Yorker in about a month that um, has to do with some reporting we did in Libya uh, about the migrant issue and sort of EU funding of stuff on the Mediterranean. Um, and um, then are taking a good look at the Chinese, you know, global squid fleet and what are they up to and a bunch of places around the world and. Uh, so I think I'm going to stay. I mean, it's a big umbrella. It's a clever umbrella in the sense that two thirds of the planet is our geographic jurisdiction and 50 million people work out there. Mm-hmm. And we, if we, if we say that our interest is at the intersection of labor, environment and human rights, well, that kind of lets us do whatever the hell we want. Yeah. You know, like that's a pretty big canvas of stories. Uh, so, and that's what we do. Um, uh, so, yeah, we've got, um, you know, just uh, a bunch of stories that we're going to launch on as soon as this Libya thing gets behind it. Cause that's been that's been our big focus for like nine months. That's great. Yeah. I wish I'd met you a few years ago. I would have I would have uh, tried to lure you into something that probably would have been a big mistake for you. But uh, <laughs> I, I hosted uh, my friend and I co-created this event in Los Angeles called the motherfucker awards and oh wait i know who's who's your friend i know the, kyle the other Tierman? i know i know yeah i know do kyle you? how do i know kyle i met kyle like several years ago at some awards function and and he he start your first motherfucker awards he uh he sent me something and i've been following it ever since is it no longer no well covid sort of shut it down 
you know, and and also just the the fact that we're trying to get corporate sponsorship for you know <laughs> calling out the biggest truckers of Mother Earth. Yeah, so, so. Uh, that's a hard point. I know some development people who have a tough fundraising <laughs> job, but that's a really tough one. <laughs> He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation Dance into the ground. 